turn in John chapter 4, if you would, to um, verse 43. John chapter 4, verse 43. We're going to go all the way through the end of, of the fourth chapter of John. So as you're finding that spot in your Bible, I was reminded as I was preparing the sermon this week, I was trying to think of, as I always do, some sort of illustration that sort of drive home what John is talking about in this text. And and John is sort of repeating some themes, honestly, in this part of the Scripture. So I'm kind of running out of illustrations. But I did think of one story that I know of because my grandmother used to live across, before she passed away, she lived in um, Park City, Kentucky. Now, most of you in here probably have no idea where Park City, Kentucky is. The Park City, Kentucky is basically right at the mouth of Mammoth Cave National Park. And but across from where she lived was this cave called Diamond Caverns. Now, the story of Diamond Caverns is that in 1859, a young slave boy, trying to remember his name, was watching some goats. And he, they were in a valley, and he's watching the goats. And all of a sudden, he's looking at these goats, and one of them just disappears. It's just gone. Just disappeared. And he runs over to see what has happened, what has happened to this goat. And he looks, and there's a hole in the ground. And the goat had fallen into this hole. So he goes and gets a rope, ties it to a tree, ties it to himself, and begins to go down into the cave originally to try to retrieve the goat. And he also has, I guess, a, some sort of torch with him, something so that he can see. And he notices something sparkling on the walls inside this cave that he has discovered. So he goes back and tells his master, and his master comes with some others, and they go down in the cave, and they notice the same thing. There's, the walls are filled with diamonds. Just diamonds everywhere. And so quickly they assemble a, a survey team. They get, it probably took a few days or some weeks even to get the people together and the equipment necessary to now go down into this cave and begin to extract these diamonds and to see how many diamonds were really there. And so they do that. They, they get the team together and they, they go down into the cave and they get ready to extract these diamonds only to find out that they actually weren't diamonds. And what they saw was these white mineral deposits that were into the rock there in the cave that were calcite. They were mineral deposits, and they, they looked like diamonds when the light was shining on them a certain way. But when you got up to it and you saw it and began to try to extract it from the walls, they realized that it wasn't diamonds at all. Matter of fact, this calcite had no value whatsoever in it. And so the, the owner of the land was very disappointed. He had gone from excited and a, a rich man in one moment to then when he discovered what was really there, he had no interest in it whatsoever. And he just sort of left it and said, oh, it's just a hole in the ground. But others began, with his permission, to explore the cave. And they discovered what is one of the most beautiful caves in all the world. Diamond Caverns is recognized as one of the most beautiful caverns in the world with amazing rock formations. The creative power of God is manifestly evident as you walk through Diamond Caverns. And so the owner had no interest in the beauty of the cavern. He just wanted the diamonds. And, well, there were no diamonds, at least not it wasn't the type of thing that he was looking for. And, and that story of the discovery of Diamond Caverns sort of came to mind this week because there's a theme that, that's resurfacing again here in the book of John. And that is of people that are coming to Jesus with a false type of faith, a false type of belief, seeking something that they want instead of seeing the beauty that's really there and, and seeking Jesus for Jesus himself. And so we see that in this passage and so if you would just stand as we get ready to read John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. John chapter 4, verse 43. We, we stand because this is the Word of God and we want to honor the reading of the Word of God. Of course, the context here, let me just remind you, Jesus has now left Samaria. 
after the revival in Sychar, the Samaritan woman has, been, has come to Christ. So I have a lot of people from her town. So this is following right after that. And so we pick it up in verse 43. And as I read these words, be reminded, this is not my word. This is the word of God. So this is an infallible and inerrant word to us. Verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word. It is an amazing book. Uh, filled with amazing narratives, stories like this one, but also filled with spectacularly deep teaching passages like the epistles, and then beautiful poetry like the Psalms. But all of it is your word, your message, your infallible testimony of yourself about who you are and what you have done to save man. And so, God, we don't want to read any part of it and take any part of it lightly. So God, as we read this story today, speak to us through your word and help us, Lord, to submit to whatever it is you're telling us through your word. Give us ears to hear. Give me a mouth to speak. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, we are going through a series. Um, for those of you who are visiting with us or perhaps visited last week and come back this week, um, we are going through a series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Our desire here at Harbin's is to walk verse by verse through passages of Scripture. And this particular passage, this, this, uh, this, or this particular series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, we're walking verse by verse through the life of Jesus, but we're also going to be hopping around between the different Gospels because we're going to harmonize the Gospels, give us a chronological view of the life of Christ. But as we do Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, this series, we've got to be careful not to read any of the passages we come upon out of their context. We, we need to make sure we're paying attention to where this passage fits, not only in the life of Jesus, but within the, the book that it's found in. So, so each gospel writer has a little different emphasis, maybe a little different theme that he's driving home as he shares about the life of Jesus. And, and that's, that's natural. I think if each one of us were to write a story about an event that we all witness, we would write with a little bit different purposes depending on who we're writing to and, and also depending upon our own personalities. So what we have here is, is in the Gospel of John, John is driving home certain points. And so as we look at this, we have to understand this text within its context. And I think if we do that, 
it'll help us deal with a couple of interpretive difficulties that are found in today's text. So I'm going to walk through those here as we get started. So you look in the very first verse here, verse 43. It says, after the two days he departed for Galilee. Again, let me remind you, that's the two days that he spent in Sychar as the the Samaritans were coming to him and believing in him. So after two days he departed for Galilee. Now, verse 44 starts with a little word, the word for. It's a conjunction. Let me just say this up front. Every word of God is inspired. Every word of God is extremely important. Even the little ones that we seem to think aren't that big of a deal. The conjunctions are just as important as anything else. So the the word for there is in the Greek and it's important and it means because. So after two days he departed for Galilee because or for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now that sounds a little strange to us. Jesus is going to Galilee because he's not going to be welcomed there. That's part of the reason he's going there. Now we know part of the reason he's going to Galilee, if you'll remember back in this, in this chapter here, we, we see that Jesus was heading north to Galilee because the, the, the Pharisees had seen that he's baptizing more people than John. That isn't making them happy, but it's not Jesus' time yet to be turned over to the Pharisees. So he's going to head north to Galilee. Unlike most Jewish rabbis, he, instead of going around Samaria because of those filthy Samaritans, he goes right through Samaria, and, and we know that he meets the woman at the well. So there's another reason for him going north to Galilee, to, to get away from the Pharisees, to meet the woman at the well. But also we have here this reason. He is going for Jesus himself. It testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Jesus says something similar in Matthew 13, verse 57, Mark 6, verse 4, and in Luke 424. So this text, John is specifically saying that one of the reasons Jesus is heading to Galilee is to be rejected by his own people. You see, Jesus' ministry was always a ministry of going to the very ones who didn't want to hear him. That includes us, by the way. Going to those who would reject him, going to those who didn't want to hear. When we consider the whole gospel of John, we understand that this act of Jesus going to those who are going to stiff arm him, going to those who are going to reject him, includes not only the Galileans, but, but also includes all of Israel, but also the whole world. John 1.11 can be interpreted in a much broader sense. He says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus came to the ones he created. He is the creator. And he came in the flesh to the ones he created and, and creation Mankind would not receive him. So this is all happening for a reason. The people of Israel, specifically in this instance, the people of Galilee, are actually storing up wrath for themselves as they reject and dishonor their Messiah. And, and that's, that's the case. Jesus comes and, and in our flesh, unless we have hearts that have been made new, like he tells um, Nicodemus, our sinful tendency, our sinful disposition because of our Adamic nature that we are sons of Adam and we have inherited not only his nature but his guilt. Our tendency is to reject. That's our only tendency is to reject Christ. He's going to Galilee demonstrating that. He's going to his own and they're going to reject him. Now there's some in Galilee by God's grace who will believe. But most as with most of Israel as with most of the world are going to dishonor him. So what we see Jesus goes to Galilee because, for, for the purpose of being rejected. 
Then we get to the next verse with another conjunction, and it's important too. Verse 45. So, so, we can substitute therefore. Therefore, okay, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So, therefore, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And you're looking at this and you're saying, what? I'm not getting this, John. You're saying Jesus is going to Galilee because for... They're going to reject him. So if I said, you know, I'm going to Taco Bell for 10 tacos, you know why I'm going. Okay? Or if you reversed it, now he has the so, which explains what's happening there, the reason that it's happening. So the Galileans welcomed him. Okay? And so it doesn't seem to make sense in our little minds here. It seems to be a contradiction. You just said he's going there because they don't honor him, and now you're saying they welcomed him. Isn't this a contradiction? Matter of fact, many of those who like to say the Bible is filled with contradictions will go to this passage, believe it or not. Will go to this passage. But I think upon closer examination and upon simple consideration of the wider context of the whole story and the wider context of, of what John is communicating, I think we see here what's happening. I, see we, I think we see it very clearly. I mean, first of all, how stupid would John have to be to contradict himself within the, within the span of one verse? So, so what is happening here? Well, he comes, they welcome him, but what kind of welcome is this? When we consider that this story is part of a section, chapters 2, 3, and 4, okay, it's just a whole section. It starts in Cana, it ends in Cana. Okay, when we consider this as part of a section where John is helping his readers see that there are some, there are some who come to Jesus and even believe in his name or welcome him who aren't really doing it in the right way. They aren't, have experience, they aren't expressing true faith. They aren't expressing true belief. This isn't a true welcome. There are those who were putting their faith in Jesus simply because they wanted to see more signs. They wanted to see more wonders. They wanted to, to witness the show. They wanted their selfish, man-centered, sinful desires to be, to be met. And so John brings this out over and over again in his gospel. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Jesus is going to those who are going to reject him. They act like they're welcoming him. Hey, come on, Jesus. Welcome home, Jesus. Maybe they got banners. Who knows? They're welcoming him, but they're welcoming the kind of Jesus they want. The Jesus who will give them the signs and the wonders. The magic man's in town. Come, everybody, listen. Now, the first clue here that this is the case is the reason that John gives us for the welcome. It says they welcomed him. What does it say next? Having seen all that he had done. They, they, have a, they have a welcoming of Jesus. They have a belief in Jesus that depends on their sight, on them seeing the miracles, seeing the show, seeing the crowds be amazed, and the great signs happening. They have a sign-dependent faith. But also we see another clue here. Let's look at the, at the passage again. Look at the whole verse, verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And does that verse sound familiar to you? It should. It should draw our minds back to chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. So let me go there real quick. Chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. This is, this is talking about the very feast that John's talking about. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem, this is speaking of Jesus, at the Passover feast, that's the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So apparently 
some of those in Galilee we know were at the feast and they saw the signs. They were part of those people that believed. Wow, look at this guy. Look at all these signs he's doing. And yeah, we'll believe in him. And they had gone back up to Galilee and these are the same people with the same type of faith. But verse 24 in John chapter 2 says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus knew their hearts weren't right. And of course, the whole chapter 3 of John is Jesus telling Nicodemus what true faith is all about. You have to be born again in order to believe. So in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, people were seeing signs. They were believing, but it wasn't real faith. It wasn't real trust. It was sign-dependent, sign-seeking, man-centered trust. And thus Jesus does not entrust himself to them. And so too here in Galilee, there are those present who were also present at the feast who have the same type of faith based totally on what they want to see him do. And they are a group of false believers. So this is a false welcome. And the final clue really that this is what John is trying to drive home is simply the words of Jesus in verse 48. I mean, Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Right? So there's no contradiction here. Instead, Jesus is purposely going to the people that, are, that don't honor him, and they are demonstrating their lack of honor by seeking him for signs instead of seeking him for who he is. You come to Jesus for any other purpose than Jesus himself, you dishonor Christ. And that's what's happening here. They are dishonoring him by the way they're welcoming him. So, ironically though, Jesus has been giving them signs Despite their unbelief, as I mentioned, John ties this event back to the, to the, to the wedding in, in, in Galilee, the wedding in Cana, where he turned the water into wine. Remember, that they said that was the first sign. And then in verse 54, it says, this is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So this is his second sign in Galilee. So Jesus is giving signs. He's giving miraculous proof of his deity, of his mission. Every miracle of Jesus is, is a sign. So it's not that signs themselves are bad. But loving signs more than loving what the signs point to is foolishness and is wrong. It's sin. It's self-centered. It's miracle-loving faith. It's superficial. It's capricious. And ultimately, it's counterfeit. And back when we talked about this, and I can't remember because my, my, my memory is not really good. But back when we talked about this in John chapter 2, I don't know if I gave this illustration or not. But imagine a family is going to, going to Disney World. If you've ever gone to Disney World, you see there's this gigantic sign as you come into Disney World. It's pretty cool looking. It's got some of the characters on it. It's got the castle and stuff like that. So could you imagine a family going to Disney World and stopping there at the sign, which you're not allowed to do, I don't think. You have to keep going. But let's say they pull over to the side and they stop at the sign and get the all family out and they take the picture you know, of, of the family in front of the sign and then they get back in the car and say, let's go home. That, we'd say they're stupid. That's foolish. Well, why, why are they doing that? And then, then to go home and tell everyone, hey, we've been to Disney World. No, you haven't. You've been to the sign. And they love the sign more than they love the actual place. And that's what's happening here. People are seeing the signs and they're loving the signs, but they're not seeing what the signs are pointing to, what the signs are announcing. And they're content to stand and have their picture taken in front of the sign and forget about what the sign is actually telling them. Who has arrived? The signs are telling you something. The man that's coming into Galilee right now, this is no ordinary man. This is the Messiah, the Son of God. You ought to put your faith in him. But they don't see that. They don't see it. We must remember the purpose of John's book, of this gospel, right? 
John gives us the purpose in John chapter 20, verse 30, doesn't he? He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's the purpose of the signs. It's the purpose of this book. So with that understanding, I want us to continue to walk through this passage this morning. And my first point, based upon the things we've already said, is simply this. Superficial faith seeks Jesus for his benefits alone. Superficial faith seeks Jesus for his benefits alone. That's what these people had. Superficial, superficial, capricious, lukewarm faith that was totally dependent upon their desires being met. They didn't love Jesus. They loved what Jesus could do. There was no genuineness to their welcome. Have you ever had an experience where you're going and buying a car and the car salesman comes out? And he's just so interested in your life. He just loves you, doesn't he? Hey there, how, it's so good to have you. Oh, you got three kids. Oh, how wonderful. What's their names? And they just, oh, he wants to know all about you. Where do you work? Oh, he could care less about you. He wants you to buy the doggone car. He doesn't love you. The moment you say, you know, actually, we're just shopping. We're not going to buy anything today. His demeanor changes, doesn't it? All right. Um, all right. Call us if you need anything. What about my kids that you love? What about our conversation we were having? Come on. They're like used car salesmen. Welcome, Jesus. And when they realize they're not going to get anything, we'll see as we progress with the Gospels, they're going to stiff arm that Jesus. And so that's what's happening here. They gave Jesus a disingenuous welcome. We preached on this before, and I don't want to spend too much time belaboring the point here. But let me just say this. Let me, let me say this for this morning. Don't get caught up on the signs and wonders. So what I, what I mean by this is, Obviously, the signs and wonders are, are superficial things that these particular people wanted. But I don't want you to think the only application of this passage is to those in here, maybe, who are trying to see miracles all the time. You know, word of faith type people, hypercharismatic type people who are, who are believing in lying signs and wonders or whatever else in order to have faith in Jesus. No, no, no. In reality, this problem of superficial faith can apply to all of us. For I'm afraid there are a thousand other reasons that people come to Christ other than the right one. And those are probably represented in this room here. A thousand reasons why people will come to Jesus that has nothing to do with the right reason to come to Jesus. So don't, don't just think this is just about miracles. Well, I'm not seeking miracles. You're seeking something else. Anything that we're coming to Christ to get that's other than him puts us in danger of the same superficial faith. The Puritans used to say that if you are going to Jesus to quiet your guilty conscience and not to have him as your complete Savior, you are going simply for the benefits. That hits pretty close to home, doesn't it? I heard it put this way once, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, and I can't even honestly remember who said it. I think I do, but I'm not sure. Some people are like subjects that are invited to the king's banquet, but they come solely to get and to enjoy what's on the king's table instead of coming to fellowship with the king. And that's sort of the image. We've been invited to a banquet. Come. And you come and you go, oh, look at the grapes. <laughs> look at this, look at that. And you don't care anything about fellowshipping with the king. You just want the benefits. What can I get from Jesus? So the question for all of us this morning, why are we here? Why have you come to church today? 
You expecting to get something? Or are you coming to commune with the living God and worship his son? How about us as a church? It's really not hard to engender shallow, superficial faith. That's really not hard to do. We we can do that pretty easy. We just need to focus on what impresses the masses, right? The flashiness, the good show, the impressive displays, the great religious experience. Voila! We have a church full of Galileans that say, Jesus, you are welcome here while showing no honor to him in their hearts. It's very easy to do. It's very easy to slip into that sort of thinking. And it happens when we start trying to attract people with the benefits instead of showing them the attractiveness of the king. Jesus said, he'll be lifted up and draw all men unto himself. But we don't think that's good enough, so we lift up a bunch of other junk and say, look here, come, come, come. Oh, and by the way, we've got Jesus too. We lift up Jesus, we preach his word. He attracts people to himself. He is attractive enough. We don't have to dress him up, folks. Now, as we continue, we'll see that there's at least one man here in Galilee who isn't simply looking for signs, although he does come to get something from Jesus at the first here. I think he leaves with a true belief in Jesus. So let's look at this man. Let's look at the evidences of genuine faith in him. So I think there's a couple of evidences here, and then then we'll, we'll close the sermon by then looking at the, the, the amazing grace of Jesus in this whole situation. But first of all, the man demonstrates humility. Look at verse 46. It says, And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. This is a, an official at Capernaum. His son is ill. Now, what I want us to see here is, is the word official. The word official. Um, that word is basilikos. Okay? It literally means one belonging to the king. One belonging to the king, or, or simply royal official. So I'm not sure what your translation says. It may say royal official. It may just say official. But it's one belonging to the king. Now, there's only one king in that area. It was Herod Antipas. So, so many scholars, and I would agree, have concluded that this person was probably from Herod's court. He was probably a, a person of high standing in Herod's court. He's not called an, a servant of the king. He's called an official of the king. He's a basilikos. Matter of fact, it's he that has servants. We read that later in the passage. He has servants working for him. I say this simply to point out that this is a powerful man. This is a man with, with, with has plenty of, of, of money at his disposal. He's a man that's used to having people come to him and implore him for things. But what do we see here? It says that when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come and heal his son for he was at the point of death. He went. He doesn't send a servant. We know he has servants. But he's not too proud. He's not too arrogant to run to Jesus himself. He's not going to send someone else. He went and came to Jesus. It says he asked. He asked him to come down and heal his son. This, this asked literally means begged or beseeched or implored. So he comes and he, he begs Jesus Come, Jesus, come and and heal my son. He's used to being the one who's in power. But in humility, he comes and he begs to the Lord Jesus, for he has encountered something, something that doesn't bow to his his position, something that uh, that doesn't bow to his prestige or pay attention to his power. What has he encountered? He's encountered death. Death is at the doorway of his house and it's coming for his son. And death doesn't care that he's an official in Herod's court. 
And so this man, this man, he's desperate. He runs to Jesus. And the next thing I want us to see is that he is helpless. He's not only humble, he's helpless. He's desperate. Capernaum was probably between 15 to 20 miles away. So he has to make that journey. It's going to take him probably about seven or eight hours to make that journey. But he's going to go. He's not going to send a servant. He's at the end of his rope. There's no hope to be found in anything else. So he comes running to Jesus. You see, people are willing to tinker with Jesus to get what they want. But they look at Jesus as just one option among many other options. Many other options when it comes to being fulfilled or being happy. If Jesus works out for them, great. But if not, well, I'll go to move on. I'll do something else. That's the disingenuous, the superficial faith. But this man is desperate because he knows that there is no solution for what's at his doorway other than this man, Jesus. So he, he runs to Jesus as his only hope, and he turns to Jesus alone for help in this time of need. Now, Jesus' response may seem a bit harsh at first. Jesus said to him, verse 48, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I mean, that's Jesus. <laughs> a lot of times we think, Jesus just, Jesus just says soft things, right? No. He says some pretty harsh things as well. He doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. He said, you know, unless you... If you don't see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. Now, we do need to understand that when he says you here, it's in the plural. So he's not just talking about this man. As this man comes and, and bows before him and begs him to come to Capernaum, Jesus looks at this man and, and he's really speaking to all the Galileans that are holding their welcome signs and everything. And he looks around at them and says, unless you guys, you, plural, or at south, we say y'all. Okay, if he were in south Judea, we'd be saying y'all, right? Unless y'all see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. We see this in other places of the gospel where it seems like Jesus' initial remark is insensitive. But Jesus is, he is condemning the crowd and he's testing the man. He's testing the man. The official says to him in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. When he says sir here, it's the word kurios. What is kurios? Lord. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, it's true the word kurios could have been, was often used simply as a greeting like sir. But it's also used to show respect to one who's of higher position, power, and prestige than you are. And considering the fact that this man was an official in Herod's court and Jesus is a peasant rabbi... And he comes to him and says, sir, come down before my child dies. What we're seeing here is that he is recognizing that this Jesus is more powerful, more prestigious, and of much higher rank than he is. And he desperately needs him to come and take care of the situation. Because his position, power, and prestige doesn't cut it. Come, Lord, before my child dies. Now, some speculate here that the official, because earlier he says come and heal my son. And now he's saying, just come before my child dies. Some speculate that perhaps he's no longer expecting Jesus to save, to, to, to save his son from death. He just wants Jesus to know his son before his son passes away. I think that's a little too speculative. I think he still wants Jesus to come and save his son. So Jesus says in, in verse 50, go, your son will live. Now, I believe what's happening in this man, we're seeing true faith begin to bubble up and emerge. 
I'm not sure it's been seen yet in the text, but I think we're about to see it. Because Jesus says something and he reacts a certain way. To me, it demonstrates true saving faith, the way this man reacts. So Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. And the man responds, what says here, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. That is the key verse in this whole text. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So up to this point, he's begging Jesus to come, come, come. Almost as if he thinks that Jesus has to be there. Jesus, you gotta, you gotta come. You gotta be there. You gotta do your thing. You know, put the holy hanky on his forehead. Whatever you gotta do, fix him. That's the superficial faith. Do your trick, Jesus. Come on. And Jesus tells him something that I'm not sure he wanted to hear. No, you just go. Go. Your son will live. This is a test. This man's at a crossroads now, isn't he? Just go? I mean, he could either respond, fine, if you're not going to help, I'm leaving. I'm going to go find some other help. Or he could respond, no, you got to be there. you got to do your thing. Or he can just simply hear the word and obey. And I think his response demonstrates, okay, I'm going to believe what you say, and I'm going to act on it. I think the key phrase, the key passage in this whole text is this passage here. The man believed the word of Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So my second point is simply this. Genuine faith takes Jesus at his word and acts He's come with humility. He's come with helplessness. And now he hears Jesus. And all he can do is trust and obey. This is a test of his faith. Think about it. He doesn't get what he wants. He came to get Jesus to come with him. So as he goes back, I can only imagine perhaps some doubts are beginning to emerge in his mind. What am I going to say to my wife when I get home? You know, She said, I sent you to get Jesus and you came back with nothing. What's going on here? But... He just hears Jesus, doesn't argue, and he obeys. He, he goes. His original plan wasn't panning out the way he had thought. But the Lord had said, go, your son will live. And he, he came seeking some sort of magic man, some sort of healer. But this man says, I don't even have to be present. You just go. Think about this. He's not even going to get to see the miracle. <laughs> A lot of people were wanting to see the miracle. Let me see. He's not going to let this man see the miracle. You just go home. Your son will live. A lot of times our faith, yeah, I believe Jesus can do anything. i got to see it. Jesus is asking us to believe him even if we can't see what he's doing behind the scenes. You may never see what it is you're praying for, but you've got to believe and have faith in what God has said in his word. You believe, have faith, and trust that he's going to do it. Go, your son will live. He believes the word of Jesus, and this is evidence in the fact that he simply obeys. He went. We see a lot of people willing to believe in God or believe in Jesus. They say they believe in God or believe in Jesus, but then they won't act upon it. The evidence that he believes is that he walks away. He goes. He, he goes back home. Faith means not only believing the word that Jesus has spoken, but, but demonstrating it, acting it out, putting all your hope, trust, and expectations in it by doing it. 
It's the word that he's believing here, the word of Jesus. Martin Luther said, In faith, one must look nothing but to the word of God. Whoever permits anything else to be pictured in his eyes has already lost. Faith clings to the naked and pure word, neither to its works nor its merits, but to the word itself. We believe simply what Jesus said. We don't need any other explanations. Simply believe what he said. Friends, there's a big difference between believing in Jesus and believing Jesus. Let me say that again. There's a difference between believing in Jesus and simply believing Jesus. Do you take him at his word? A lot of people say, yeah, I believe in God. I believe Jesus. And Jesus says, well, here, this is my word. And they say, ah, I, don't, I can't do that. Whoa. <laughs> I can't really do what that says. I mean, but I believe in Jesus. You don't believe in nothing. I want people that believe in Jesus. I want people that believe Jesus. What he says. And you do it. That's what Jesus is looking for. We need to fix our eyes on Christ, hear his word, and simply obey. This passage is very much a passage about two different types of faith. One, the disingenuous, shallow, faux faith, which, which turns someone into a spectator who sits back to see what God's going to do for him. But the other is a genuine, true, trusting faith that turns us into a participant where we step out in faith and believe what God's doing for us. Two different types of faith. In church, this is why we preach the word. We could set aside the word and focus on the show or focus on the religious experience. But that will lead to a room full of spectators who, who abandon the Lord once their particular need is no longer being met. Or we can preach the word, preach the promises of God, and call on people to put their faith in those promises, for they are rock solid, and if they will hear the word of Christ and build their house on that rock by doing the word of Christ, nothing will take them down. No sick child, no financial ruin, no cancer, no persecution, not even death itself. Nothing will take them down if they're standing on the rock of the word of Christ doing what he has said for them to do. Nothing will take them down. I do not mean that None of that stuff will come into your life. No, it will come. The winds and the waves, they come. The sick children comes. The cancer comes. And yes, death is coming to all of us. But my friends, if you are standing on the rock, you will stand strong and you will not collapse. And that's what this man is doing just by simply going. Okay. You say go and he'll live. I'm going to go. Or we can put on the show. And people will put their faith in something so sandy and so weak that when those winds and those waves come, they begin to say, sure God loves me. Because their house collapses because they didn't hear the word and do it. It's that simple. So why do we preach the word? There you go. There you go. Because we stand on it. I want you to hear it. I want you to do it. I want to hear it. I want to do it. Proverbs, verse 30, I mean chapter 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. 
He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. What comfort, what peace, what refuge, what rest when we're putting our trust in what Christ has said. What what peace there is. But do you see, that's the byproduct. That's the byproduct of trusting what Jesus says and obeying it. Don't come to Jesus to get the peace. Jesus, I just want peace, I just want peace, I just want peace. No. You come to Jesus and whatever you say, Jesus, I'll believe it, I'll obey it. And guess what? The peace comes as the byproduct. People are going to Jesus for the byproducts and missing out on the real thing. They miss the cave because they want the diamonds. And that's what's happening all around our world today, all in our culture. I want us to find our rest, our peace, our refuge in the words of Christ. Matter of fact, I think it's demonstrated here in the text. Go to verse 51. So it says, As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Then it goes on. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, when? Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. What's the seventh hour? You remember the sixth hour? If I've got my timetable right in the book of John, the sixth hour was noon, right? So that means the seventh hour is one o'clock in the afternoon. This wasn't a long conversation. It may have been 1.15 when Jesus says, go, your son will live. He's got time to get home. I think there's something very restful about this man when he leaves. Okay, I'm going to believe what you say. I'm going to go home. My son's going to live. Now, his wife is probably wondering, when is he going to get back? So she sends the servants. Go find him. I don't know. Speculating. The servants come. They run into him. Hey, they say, your son's better. He's, he's, he's recu- recuperating. When did it happen? Yesterday. You know, when we expected you home? Yesterday. For whatever reason, this man took a while to get home. And that's considering that the servants actually came half the way. I don't know why he took so long, but I do know this. That his son was healed. That he believed the word of Christ. He walked out, trusted in what Jesus said. And Jesus did what he said. So, this man, I believe, is demonstrating a newfound rest in the Lord. That helpless panic is gone. It had subsided. Jesus had spoken... He believed, he acted, trusting God, and he had peace, he had rest. Upon hearing the good news that the man's son had been healed, it says in verse 43, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all of his household. His faith increased. He now had a, a solidified faith in his heart. I love how as God continues to keep his promises to his people, how we look back at God's kept promises and we just, it just solidifies and strengthens our faith. So he looks back and his, his faith is strengthened here. Him and his whole household, he, he shares the gospel with his whole household when he gets home of the good news of this man, Jesus, who is truly the Messiah. I heard a story of an old Christian man who had passed away. And the minister who was preparing to do his funeral looked in his Bible. And all throughout his Bible, he saw TNT. Written, T-N-T, written, all these margins of his Bible. So he goes to the, to the widow and says, what's this T-N-T all over the Bible? He says, oh, she said, well, my husband would write beside the promises of God, tried and true, tried and true, 
tried and true. So here is this man who had gone through his life and had stood on the word of God and God had been faithful to his promises and he would take out his pen and write, tried and true, tried and true. And if you look back through his Bible, he was, his faith was strengthened as he would go back and look at how God had been faithful. I keep something in my office called my V-file. Some of y'all have heard me talk about my V-file. You know what my V-file is? It's not about aliens or anything. It's the V-file stands for victory. It's my victory file. Not, not my victory, but the victory that Christ is accomplishing in my life. And so I, when I'm down in ministry, and I'm feeling just beat down, I'll go back to the V-file, and I'll pick out cards that people have sent, encouragements, different things that people have sent me over the years, and I see how God has been faithful to use my ministry to, not anything about me, but work through me to minister to others, and it keeps me going. I see how faithful God has been. So, so I keep the V-file to sort of to fall back on when I'm down in the sun. So it's kind of like the TNT in this man's Bible. We look back and we say, okay, God's been so faithful. I'm going to keep on trusting, and I'm going to keep on trusting, and I'm going to keep on trusting. My friends, when you stay in this word, when you hear Jesus and you obey and you see that his promises are true, I guarantee you that your faith will increase. It's tried and true. Now, I want to conclude, and I'm going to conclude quickly. I know you're freaking out because there's five blanks left. But I'm, going to, I'm going to speed through these. So don't, don't go ballistic on me here. It's just noon. Your stomach will hold off. So just listen. I want to conclude because this is a series on seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. And certainly we need to see what true faith looks like. And so we look at this man and we look at what's the circumstances. And, we, and that increases our faith as we look at these words. And, and so we want to have this true faith and not a false faith. But also, let's just look real quickly here as we conclude at the, the amazing grace that Jesus demonstrates in this passage. First of all, number one, in your blanks. And I'll bring them up here on the screen. Number one, undeserved grace. His grace by its very nature is undeserved, but he goes to sinners who will not honor him. The whole beginning of this passage, him going to Galilee, is just a demonstration of, his, of this undeserved grace. You and I are the dishonoring Galileans. Don't get all upset at the Galileans for their, their attitude. That's you and me. We deserve separation from him Yet for the purpose of magnifying his grace, he goes to undeserved sinners and saves them. As I already quoted John 1, 1, says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. My friends, aren't you, aren't you glad that, that even though you are an undeserving sinner, that Christ's grace overcame that and defeated your undeservedness? And so he goes to Galilee. That man doesn't deserve to have his son healed. That man doesn't deserve the faith he received. He doesn't deserve anything. And neither do you and I. The second thing is confrontational grace. People think, as I said earlier, Jesus only spoke soft and comforting words. But they're wrong. Jesus often spoke direct, seemingly harsh words. He says to this man, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And he, he, he takes his word out sometimes like a sword and... Right to the heart. And I'm so glad that that's how Jesus works. With confrontational grace. If not, we'd all be stuck with the faux faith, the fake faith, the disingenuous faith. But thanks be to God that he takes his word, cuts to our heart, cuts out that hypocrisy, and begins to make us into who he wants us to be through his word. So confrontational grace. Next, compassionate grace. 
It's just tremendous compassion on display here. Why this man? Why his son? There's hundreds of children dying all across Galilee at that moment. But what compassion he shows to this man who comes and begs Jesus to heal his son. I just want us to see the, the compassion of Jesus. What compassion that we receive every day of our life. Every day that your life is prolonged. This boy had an appointment with death and Jesus canceled that appointment and prolonged his life. We don't know what our day holds. But every day that you continue to live, your appointment with death has not yet come. You should be thanking God for his compassion upon you. What compassion upon me to let me walk on this earth another day. Undeserved. Sometimes confrontational. Always compassionate. And always, number four, mighty. The mighty grace of God. What sovereignty Christ shows by simply saying, go, your son will live. Just go. So from 15 or 20 miles away, Jesus says, your son will live. And the bacteria or the viruses or the cancer or whatever it was leaps up at attention at the voice of its creator. and says, I'm out of here. That's the sovereign power of Jesus, the sustainer of the universe. Do you see that in this passage? It's wonderful. Go, your son will live. And at that very moment, the passage tells us, I can only imagine the scene. There's the mom with the, with the child, and, and it's, 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 it's 1 o'clock. It's hot. It's in, in Galilee. And, and he's running a fever. And so he, he looks pale. He, his, his mouth is parched, and she's trying to care for him. He's barely breathing. The, his, his breathing is so shallow, the, the sheets that are covering are barely moving. And so she goes over to the water basin to, to kind of refresh her rag. And so she hears a noise. And she turns around. And there's the boy standing on the bed. And he's got a stick in his hand. And he's playing Roman soldier. Instantaneously, boom, everything changed. And she drops that water jar and it shatters. as she sees the power and might of God on display in an instant in her son's life. I think that's the moment she said, servant, go, go, get, go get the master quickly. The, the raw might of Christ is on display in this passage. The raw power and sovereignty of Christ is on display in this passage. Finally, the victorious grace. <clears throat> victorious grace. What a preview of Jesus' ministry this little event is. Here we see death. Death is clinging to the life of a young boy. Death, the eternal enemy of man, never ceasing, never losing. It's always won its battles until now. Until this point, death has always been winning. Death was ready to pluck its next victim. But when 15 miles away, the word of the Lord said he will live, and death retreated. For this voice had authority in it. And death would retreat many other times in Jesus' ministry. We see death on the retreat until the day Jesus rose from the tomb. And we see death defeated. All throughout his ministry, death is retreating, death is retreating, death is retreating. And then in the resurrection, death is defeated. Because Christ is a victorious king. And therefore, this grace is a victorious grace. It's a victorious grace. Nothing keeps Jesus' grace from triumphing. Period. The official would come home and he'd begin to testify to his family about this Jesus. Let me tell you what he said. 
And the whole family would begin rejoicing. Notice they don't come back and throw a party because the kid's better. He says, they just all believed. The whole household. So we see the amazing power of Jesus on display, the amazing grace of Christ on display in this passage. And we see these people, this official and his family, acknowledging and believing in this man, this Jesus, that he is indeed the son of the living God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And their belief was real. And it was genuine. And they belonged to the king. So I'll leave you with a hanging question this morning. What type of faith do you have? And why are you here? What type of faith do you have? And what have you come here for? And if Jesus gives you a word that you just don't understand, he says, go. Are you going to obey what he says or not? Are you going to simply trust and obey? I love that hymn we sang earlier, Tis So Sweet, to trust in Jesus. I think think the next line is, just to take him at his word, right? In simple faith, believe him. So let's take him at his word. It may not always make sense to us. Go? Really? I spent eight hours getting here. You're telling me to go? Just take him at his word and act upon what he says. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. We'll conclude with a song here in a minute. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for who Jesus is. That he is the sovereign king of the universe. That... that Death now has no longer any dominion over him, has never had any dominion over him, and absolutely was demonstrated that it had no dominion over him at the resurrection. And now those who have been united to Christ by faith, it has no more dominion over us as well. So God, we praise you and thank you that we have eternal life in Christ Jesus alone. That his mighty grace, his compassionate grace, his uncomfortably confrontational grace has been a victorious grace that invaded into our lives and saved us. Us undeserving Galileans who would rather stiff-arm Jesus than to embrace the Messiah. God, I thank you that you broke my stiff arm and you embraced me and brought me to yourself by grace alone. So God, I pray this morning there be anybody here who hears these words about Jesus and hears this need to simply believe what Jesus says and act upon it. Believe what he says about himself and come to him in total faith. Lord, that they would do that today. Father, that your spirit would move upon them in such a way that they would want to talk to me or one of the other men in the church about what this saving faith really is like. So God, I ask for that. Pray, Lord, you be with us as we sing this closing song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.